1785, Jefferson arrived in Paris as a minister of the newly designated United States. His five years in France would prove to be seminal in American consolidation of the Constitution, which he awaited correspondence from abroad, as well as the stirrings of what would become the French Revolution. In February 1785, Jefferson began correspondence with Richard Price, an English radical who was an early supporter of the American and then the French Revolution, acknowledging his receipt of a copy of Price's observations on the American Revolution. The spirit which it breathes is as affectionate as the observations themselves are wise and just, he wrote to Price. In his observations, Price advocates for the American experiment and, like Benjamin Franklin, a friend of his, famously remarked, maybe, on whether the Constitutional Convention chose a republic or a monarchy, a republic, if you can keep it. Price writes, quote, Should they lose those virtuous and simple manners by which alone republics can long subsist, should false refinement, luxury, and irreligion spread among them, excessive jealousy district their governments, and clashing interests subject to no strong control break the federal union, the consequence will be that the fairest experiment ever tried in human affairs will miscarry, and that a revolution which had revived the hopes of good men and promised an opening to better times will become a discouragement to all future efforts in favor of liberty and prove only an opening to a scheme of human degeneracy and misery. Welcome to Expeditions, a podcast around Lewis and Clark, where we look at the history and historiography one day at a time. We are at Expeditions Pod everywhere, social media, Patreon if you want to support the podcast, as well as our website. You are currently in Mile Marker 3, episode, The Storm is Now Subsiding and the Horizon Becoming Serene, The Election of 1800. Fifteen years later, human degeneracy and misery felt like they were on trial, as the baneful effects of the spirit of party took center stage for the first time. As mentioned yesterday, the core issues involved in the election of 1800 forged a path that our story will now travel upon. Domestically, Adams and Jefferson stood opposed on many issues. First and foremost was opposition to the Naturalization, Alien, and Sedition Acts of 1798. The first Naturalization Act of 1790 set a two-year residency requirement and established how one could become an American citizen, including notions of a citizen being naturally born. A 1795 update increased that residency to five years, while the 1798 Act upped it to 14, with a prior notice of application set to five from three years in 1795. The Alien Friends and Alien Enemies Acts were also passed. These allowed the president to detain, imprison, and deport non-citizens to friends or enemies, i.e. during a war and would continue to be used into the 20th century. The Friends Act, quote, worthy of the 8th or 9th century, according to Jefferson, expired after two years, while the Enemies Act is still officially on the books. Most loathed, however, was the Sedition Act, signed on Bastille Day 1798, quote, an experiment on the American mind to see how far it will bear an avowed violation of the Constitution, according to Jefferson. This act allowed the president to imprison anyone who makes false or malicious statements against the government, though rightfully interpreted as a suppression of speech and criticism. As we'll see, Jeffersonian newspaper men were caught up by the Sedition Act, including James Callender. Though the Sedition Act expired in 1800, it played a sizable role in the election of Thomas Jefferson. 
to keep things domestic, the national debt and potential of a national bank also cut across political battle lines. The role of the military and standing armies would have a direct impact on Meriwether Lewis's life, as well as the outfitting and support of the future Corps of Discovery. Along with the size and scope of the military, the size and scope of the government itself was at stake. Jefferson, a skeptic of pretty foundational elements of the Constitution, would secretly author the Kentucky Resolution, with Madison authoring the subsequent Virginia Resolution, in opposition to the Alien and Sedition Acts, introducing the Principles of 98, that is state's rights to nullify, sorry, interpose any law that it deems unconstitutional, with no consequences down the road whatsoever. The principles would be broadly part of Jefferson's party plank, as it were. They broadly signaled a desire to end the intolerable acts of the Adams administration, but also to govern in a style more akin to the late Articles of Confederation. The foreign policy goals between Adams and Jefferson were also deeply at odds. The French Revolution had gifted fissures that cut across party lines. Adams would preside over a quasi-war with France, stemming from the possibility of war between France and Great Britain and the infamous XYZ affair where agents of France attempted to garner a bribe from U.S. commissioners. The implications that there was a fifth column at home was another aspect behind the dreaded Alien and Sedition Acts. It also led to a buildup of the new army during a time when a consistent theme of the early national era is a distrust for standing armies. And while it's one thing to oppose all war, it's another to insist that Adams just got the enemy wrong, that it was actually Great Britain that we should still be at war with, especially as the issues of impressment would continue into the 1812 war, especially as France was defeated by the British in October 1798 on the Nile, and the threat of Napoleon extending his war to England or to America subsided, despite the coup of 18 Brumaire, or the coup of November 9, 1799, where Napoleon overthrew the Directory to take control of France. Over objections of his cabinet, which resulted in their firings, John Adams forged a treaty with France, also called the Convention of 1800, which avoided war, though its efforts wouldn't bear fruit until after he'd lost the election. In broad strokes, the legacy of the revolution was in play between the advocates of Republican and those of kingly government, between a renunciation of foreign despotism and the Federalist wish to let us no longer pray that America may become an asylum to all nations, between Jefferson's desiring against foreign entanglements and Federalist belief that the Republicans wanted to make this country a province of France. It all felt much larger and defining than Jefferson telling Adams, quote, were we both to die today, Tomorrow, two other names would be put into the place of ours without any change in the motion of the machinery." End quote. The contentious campaign would play out in ways modern Americans were very familiar with. Federalists insisted on their right to rule and banked on the threat of Jacobinism and the hinting at an American terror if Republicans were elected in general. William Corbett, writing under the absolutely amazing name Peter Porcupine, noted, quote, "'Now is the crisis advancing, the abandoned faction devoted to France have long been conspiring, and their conspiracy is at last brought near to an explosion. I have not the least doubt that they have 50,000 men provided with arms in Pennsylvania alone. If vigorous measures are not taken, if the provisional army is not raised without delay, a civil war or a surrender of independence is not more than 12 months' distance." End quote. Likewise, Jeffersonian newspapers and pamphleteers urged the ousting of the corrupt and despotic monarch 
of Braintree. As you can see, most of these attacks disseminate from the press. The Republicans had Adams' tragic policy record to use to their advantage, but James Callender couldn't resist calling him Armaphrodite, as he, quote, behaved neither like a man nor a woman, end quote. Um, question mark, question mark, question mark. The Federalists accused Jefferson of being a French-loving Jacobin atheist who cheated clients when he was a lawyer, fled from the British during the brief 1784 ray into Virginia when he was governor, and would incredibly, quote, destroy religion, introduce immorality, and loosen the bonds of society, end quote, allowing prostitution, incest, and adultery to be legalized along with murder and robbery, to say nothing of the true rumor that flew many times for obvious reasons that Jefferson had an affair, one way to put it, with one of his slaves. Jefferson would lament that the newspapers were teeming with every falsehood they could invent for defamation, where newspaper editors are responsible for the demoralizing practice of feeding the public mind habitually on slander and the depravity of taste, and that defamation is becoming a necessary of life, insomuch that a dish of tea in the morning or evening cannot be digested without a stimulant. Even those who do not believe in these abominations still read them with complacence and betray a secret pleasure in the possibility that some may believe them, though they do not themselves. Yet it wouldn't even be a completely partisan affair, as Jefferson directly benefited, in some ways that seem pretty obvious, from Alexander Hamilton's 54-page letter published as concerning the public conduct and character of John Adams. And while not looking to impugn his character or his resolve toward the revolution, it did exactly that. It's one thing to berate one another in the papers, but it's another thing to attempt to steal an election. It echoes down to our present day, Federalist Senator James Ross of Pennsylvania, who took his seat after future Jefferson and Madison Treasury Secretary Albert Gallatin was deposed because he hadn't been a citizen long enough, introduced a bill to establish a new voting process in the Electoral College, namely a committee of 13 chosen between the House, Senate, and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And who would choose this committee? Well, Congress, of course, that incidentally was controlled by the Federalists. They'd have the power to count votes and throw out suspicious ones, and their decision alone would be final. This outrage compounded with all the others, and even though the issue was dropped, the sense of the legitimacy of the election was palpable. But the upcoming constitutional crisis wasn't exactly the one that they would have predicted. On December 3rd, 1800, members of the Electoral College assembled in their state capitals to cast their votes. Without getting into the weeds, there was no ticket as the runner-up would become the vice president, so the goal was to organize electors who each had two votes to give an outright win to the candidate of choice, Jefferson, while also padding the stats for who you wanted to be vice president to avoid a scenario where Jefferson was Adams' vice president. However, it's vital for at least one person to throw away a vote so your candidate of choice wins outright and the designated vice president has at least one less vote. This famously did not happen. As Thomas Jefferson told Andrew Ellicott, newly returned from his survey of the 31st parallel between the U.S. and West Florida, the election is under dilemma. If there was a tie, the House of Representatives would choose the president among the two men with the most votes. No big deal, as the runner-up would just tell Congress to vote for Jefferson. Easy. Thus, without the coordination of the Federalists, Thomas Jefferson accrued the most votes, tied with 
New York's Aaron Burr. Burr is a unique character in early American history. He fought in the war and became a lawyer in New York. His viewpoints were often obscured, and he was yet to be linked eternally to Alexander Hamilton. At this stage, he was an indebted aristocrat dabbling in politics for fun and honor and profit. He was a mere matter-of-fact man who loathed committing his ideology to paper. Things written remain, he'd warned to his law clerks. This shadow upon the wall of the cave would allow the House of Representatives, overwhelmingly Federalist, as they wouldn't be replaced by the Republican wave until next year, to make Burr into whatever figure they wished. Stephen T. Mason would report that the Federalists intended to force things into confusion by defeating an election altogether and making a president by an act of Congress. For Federalists, if Burr had no theory, why couldn't he just be one of their own? If he really stood for nothing, why couldn't he be manipulated for their own ends? Why couldn't they win this election anyway? As John Dawson wrote to James Madison, this stemmed not from a wish to elect him, but to prevent a choice. But winning wouldn't prove as easy as some thought. Governor Thomas McKean of Pennsylvania saw the forces behind the scenes, but thought honor would win the day. Quote, as it appears from the explicit and honorable conduct of Mr. Burr, there will be no competition on his part. It is reasonably to be expected that there can be no difficulty in the ballot. Interest, character, duty, love of country all conspire to ensure this event. But I have been told that envy, malice, despair, and a delight in doing mischief will prompt the Anglo-Federalist to set all other considerations at naught, and that it is intended to so manage as to keep the states equally divided in order that Congress may, in the form of a law, appoint a president for us until a new election shall take place." End quote. On February 11th, Jefferson, as sitting vice president, unbound the electoral certificates and announced the results in a joint session of Congress. His handling of Georgia's certificate, which was defective, though there was no doubt that they had voted for Jefferson and Burr, and no objections would be raised, would be used by Donald Trump in his attempt to steal the 2020 presidential election. But that's a story for another time and another podcast. Jefferson and Burr each had 73 votes, John Adams 65, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney one less at 64, and John Jay one vote, that one vote that was needed. The 16 states agreed to begin formal balloting, with each state having one vote, with two-thirds majority, that is nine states, needed in order to win. After the first ballot, Jefferson had eight states, Burr had six, and two states, Maryland and Vermont, remained divided. This vote remained the same for the next 35 ballots. An estimated 100,000 people began to gather in Washington. The threat of civil war brewed. Anger at Federalist's attempt at hijacking the presidency were mixed with fears that Congress may select an interim president or propose a new election to say nothing of a military intervention. And if that were the case, Jefferson wrote to Madison that the Federalist should anticipate, quote, the certainty that a legislative usurpation would be resisted by arms, end quote. All the while, intrigue and letter writing continued. Earlier, Jefferson had warned that Burr was sanguine enough to hope for everything, daring enough to attempt everything, and wicked enough to scruple nothing. That he never publicly denied the scrambling for votes to elect him would sour any kind of relationship he could have had with Thomas Jefferson. And while John Marshall and John Adams never endorsed Burr, Hamilton famously advocated for Jefferson as the least of two evils. In short, Jefferson has beliefs. Burr has none. 
On February 17, 1801, the 36 vote deadlock finally cracked. No one switched sides as much as they abstained. It was Delaware's lone elector, James Bayard, turning in a blank ballot that sealed Jefferson's victory, although Maryland and Vermont's impasse broke for Jefferson as well. In the end, Jefferson's pleas that the public good must be paramount to every private consideration won out. With the passing of the 12th Amendment in 1804, the constant repeat of this crisis would never materialize again, though by no means was this the end of constitutional crises down to these very moments. The storm is now subsiding and the horizon becoming serene, Thomas Jefferson wrote to Joseph Priestley just after his election, which mirrors Jefferson's final correspondence with Richard Price. Tranquility is perfectly established, he wrote, and pretty generally so through the whole kingdom. He wasn't talking about Washington after the victory in early 1801, but Paris in September of 1789. Then, as now, perhaps it felt like the country had been put through the ringer. He'd tell Priestley, quote, We can no longer say there is nothing new under the sun, for this whole chapter in the history of man is new. The great extent of our republic is new. End quote. For 1789's Jefferson, this tranquility came after the declaration of a national assembly in June, the fall of the Bastille and the formation of the National Guard, headed by Jefferson's friend, the Marquis de Lafayette, in July, the August decrees that abolished privileges and feudal rights that propped up the Ancien Regime, which would lead to factions, namely the Sans-Culottes and the Girondins, and the adoption of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. The Woman's March on Versailles that removed the King to Paris in October, to say nothing of the guillotine and the coming terror, couldn't have been predicted. To Priestley, he notes, quote, the mighty wave of public opinion which has rolled over it is new. The order and good sense displayed in this recovery from delusion and in the momentous crisis which lately arose really bespeak a strength of character in our nation which augurs well for the duration of our republic." End quote. One wonders if Jefferson didn't have Price's reflections on his mind, the, quote, revolution that must astonish Europe that shakes the foundation of despotic power, end quote. Price would watch the American and French revolutions grip England, his pamphlet debates with Edmund Burke would become famous, consuming much of the last two years of his life. He wouldn't live to see Jefferson at the head of the United States, but Price remained a guidepost as Jefferson eased into governance. Mm -hmm.